Assalamu alaikum, peace be on you, and good morning and welcome to a very special episode of Faith in Focus on the Voice of Islam Radio. My name is Manazza Chow, I'm a doctor and a mom of three, and I'll be hosting this episode. Today we're broadcasting live from the Voice of Islam studio at Oakland's farm in Alton, better known as Hadikat al-Mahdi, or the Garden of the Mahdi. This is the site of the annual convention of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community known as Jalsa Salana. Although usually a place of quiet serenity, once a year this site comes alive and hosts tens of thousands of volunteers and guests participating in this incredible event. The last two years of COVID restrictions and limitations has meant that the annual convention, like most things, has been quite different. But by the grace of God, as pandemic regulations ease, it feels incredible to be back, on site, and to experience the distinct atmosphere of the annual convention firsthand. That said, as a community under the guidance of our Caliph, we are still being cautious and taking precautions to prevent the spread of COVID at such a large-scale event. Today I'm joined in our studio here on site today by some of the Faith and Focus team of presenters and hosts and guests. I'd like to welcome Anila Talukdar, a chemical scientist turned primary school teacher. Assalamualaikum, thank you for having me. Welcome, Salam. Nadia Ghori, currently a master's student at SOAS University. Assalamualaikum, Anaza, peace be upon you. Welcome, Salam. And Tahira Choudhury, a solicitor and mum of four sons. Assalamualaikum, thanks for having me. Welcome, Salam. And Sarah Ward, a teacher and another mother of three. Welcome. Assalamualaikum, thank you for having me. Welcome, Sarah, and all of you, and thank you for joining me today. So, as you may have heard in other shows today and in previous years, the tradition of the annual convention was started by the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community and promised Messiah, His Holiness Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, peace be upon him. His Holiness hosted the first ever annual convention in 1891 in Gardian, India, where he made very clear the purpose of the annual convention. He said, and I quote, The primary purpose of this convention is to enable every sincere individual to personally experience religious benefits. They may enhance their knowledge, and due to their being blessed and enabled by Allah, the exalted, their perception of Allah may progress. Among its secondary benefits is that this congregational meeting together will promote mutual introduction among all brothers, and it will strengthen the fraternal ties within this community. And now, over 130 years later, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community continues to strive to uphold and fortify these very values. Annual conventions are held around the world, and the UK convention usually welcomes around 30,000 guests, all engaging in the pursuit of knowledge, spiritual development, a meaningful relationship with our Creator, as well as building bonds of community. So this is now the second day of this year's convention. I'd like to come to our Faith in Focus panellists. How have you found the annual convention so far? Were any speeches or events that have been, have been particularly notable to you? And what's it been like coming back attending a post-pandemic convention? Well, well <laughs> it kind of feels like coming home in a way because I, I haven't, didn't come last year, I haven't been for two years, but everything's kind of the same like everyone's the same they've just gone back into their roles um 
and it's been really nice to be able to attend an event of this size again because it's been a while and a notable moment for me was yesterday I was on duty doing some work and then suddenly all goes silent and it's because everyone's joined in in silent prayer and you don't get that everywhere you never have like pin drop silence everywhere so it's been really nice coming back to that Mashallah. and Sarah? Um, yeah, you definitely don't get uh, pin drop silence in the classroom yeah. <laughs> very often, Anila. Um, but I did was lucky enough to attend uh, last year, Alhamdulillah, and last year was very different in terms of the number of people. Um, we could only come for one day, and it was raining really heavily, very heavily, and the ground was very muddy. Um, and this year, it's just very dry. It's like the opposite. Um, yes. We can come for all three days this year. Um, and I think that you learn that with time, with jalsas. Every jalsa is different Absolutely. and it never stays the same. So although I've been coming for a, lot, a number of years, <laughs> probably over 40 years I've been coming to jalsa, every year is different, the speeches are different, the speakers are different. It has um, a new vibe, there's always something to learn. And that's one of the purposes of coming to Jalsa, is to learn something. So even after 40 years, I can still come and learn something new, whether it's in an exhibition, and the exhibitions are evolving each year and um, getting bigger or doing new topics, or whether it's meeting new people, making new friends. Um, I think that's one of the things, part of the continuity of Jalsa, is that it's always changing, there's always something different, something new to learn. Absolutely. So the spirit stays the same, but the weather just adds that little bit of variability. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for sharing your thoughts and experiences. It's really lovely to hear the excitement and, and joy in your voices. So today, on the second day of the annual convention, it's the tradition of our caliph, His Holiness Mirza Masroor Ahmed, may Allah be his helper, to come to the ladies' arena of the annual convention to deliver his keynote speech. And His Holiness will be gracing the ladies' marquee very soon, and in anticipation of this, I'd like to cast our minds back to last year's uh, convention um, and the very poignant and impactful speech His Holiness delivered in the ladies' arena. Uh, during his address, His Holiness commented on the nature of the, the rights and responsibilities afforded to both men and women in Islam. Um, focusing particularly on the teachings of Islam to establish unity, equity and, and justice between men and women. Considering the challenges faced by many Muslim women living in the UK and other Western societies, this address is one that really struck um, and stuck with me um, and as really empowering. One reason for this is that from the outset, His Holiness reminded Muslim women that Islam doesn't impose responsibilities or afford um, rights without rhyme or reason. What Islam does do is um, encourage men and women to understand their role within society and religion. So Anila, can you remind us what His Holiness said in, in reference to this and how important you think that it is for developing a love of Islam as a woman? Yes, of course, I'll try. Um, it was a very thought-provoking and inspiring address, and I'll try my best to summarise some of the things mentioned. His Holiness talked at length about the rights of women in Islam. I actually liked the, the way he started by saying that Islam is a religion that teaches us not to focus on fighting for our own rights, but to focus on fulfilling the rights of others, and that this is the way to establish an environment of peace and tranquility. It was mentioned that the second caliph of our community, may Allah be pleased with him, said that the Holy Quran not only grants entitlements to women, but they are so strongly emphasised that an entire avenue of knowledge has been opened up as a result. 
And I know some of these concepts like education and veiling are going to be talked about later in the show. So I'll just summarise a few of the key points here. Um, a right that women had in Islam way before anywhere else is the right to own property and inheritance. Islam gave us this right 1,400 years ago, whereas the rest of the world has own, was only granted this right about 100 to 150 years ago. Previously, when a woman got married, any money or property she may have owned became her husband's, and someone used to abuse this, um, someone probably still do, um, and marry women only to take their property, not just in Islam, but in all um, cultures and areas. So Islam declared that the property of a woman was hers and gave her so much freedom that the companions of the Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, were very careful not to um, spend money that their wives gave them um, until Islam's teachings declared that they could, um, you know, be used money that their wives gave yeah. them willingly. Yeah, as a gift. Um, yeah. So, and I'm sure many people um, in a, uh, know that in Islam we have arranged marriages. Um, marriages are usually proposed by parents or relatives. Um, and in this address, His Holiness clarified that when it comes to marriage, Islam grants women the right to choose. Um, if a woman does not consent, then the marriage cannot go ahead. There's often a misconception that arranged means forced. However, this is not the case, though unfortunately some parents do still pressure their children to marry persons of their choice. Um, but forced marriage is not an Islamic teaching. Um, in fact, Islam has gone so far as to say that if a marriage is settled against the will of the girl, then it is a grave violation of Islamic teachings. His Holiness in his address reminded parents that they should not pressure their girls to marry whom um, the parents wish, rather the correct method is for the parents to pray and then express their desire. However, they cannot force their daughter. He really emphasized that point. Um, it was also mentioned in this address that the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, stated that the best among you is he who is best towards his wife, which I think we've all heard many times. Um, in relation to this, His Holiness said, How grand is this statement that in favour of women, if men do not have a good relationship with women, then it is not possible to be at one with God either. Man is compelled in that to please the Almighty Allah, he must fulfil the rights of women. During the time of the promise, uh, the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, women were treated as possessions and they had no status. Um, but Prophet Muhammad, um, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, changed this. Um, one thing he said was that women should be consulted on important matters and he would often seek counsel from his wives, which was probably unheard of at the time. Um, his Holiness related an account of when one of the Prophet's um, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, companion's wife said, gave him some advice on a particular matter and the companion responded with, who are you to interfere? And she replied, let it be. Those days are long gone when we had no rights. Don't try to intimidate me. Those days are no more. Now the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, too, seeks counsel from his wives. Who are you to stop me? This is how much emphasis was given to the rights of women. Women also realise that they are not inferior to men. Mm, this is a particular narration that when I hear it gives me goosebumps. Um, the words of the companion's wife are so powerful and confident. Mm. Um, and I, I always find it so inspiring when I reflect and appreciate that this, this power and this confidence came from Islam. Yeah. And it is not taken away by Islam at all. 
Yes, and it has even more impact if we consider that this social change happened in a very short time frame. So women went from having no voice and having their lives considered disposable to this level of self-reliance and self-confidence as a result of the teachings of Islam. And I think this is a great example of what His Holiness imparted to us in last year's address, that we should educate ourselves about our religion so that it can be a source of empowerment for us. In the time of the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, women worked hard to acquire religious knowledge. His Holiness told us that this is crucial for us today, that we as women understand our status and the guidance provided on how to safeguard ourselves. So we should educate ourselves on the status and rights that Islam has given us, and we should endeavor to increase our religious knowledge and then train our children too. The Holy Quran states and explains the rights associated with women, and the example of the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, shows us how these rights should be implemented and his guidance explain them. And then the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, further explained them in his discourses and writings, and the Ahmadiyya Caliphs have also described them. So if we take all of these into account and educate ourselves, then there is no reason that we should ever feel that our religion, Islam, does not take our rights into account. As Ahmadi women, we should know our rights and not fall for the propaganda that states that our religion does not give us rights or equality. Absolutely. Thank you, Anila. You touched on a lot of important points there and and, that, and what you've said leads perfectly on to our next topic, which is education. Um, as we all know, Islam doesn't only encourage the pursuit of spiritual knowledge, but also secular knowledge. And we have seen through the years during the academic award uh, prize ceremony at the annual convention, so many Ahmadi women excel in their secular studies and careers. And this year, due to restrictions still in place, uh, just the names of the high achievers uh, will be announced. Nadia, what is the role of learning and getting an education in Islam and, and what does His Holiness explain about the impact of educating women? So just as you've said, um, Islam encourages the pursuit of both spiritual and secular knowledge without any doubt. I'd go as far as to say that Islam was and remains a trailblazing faith in this respect, providing men and women an equal right, a duty even, to acquire an education. Beyond the personal benefits, the pursuit of education is fundamental for the advancement and prosperity of any society. Unfortunately, there are, however, many millions of children who don't have the basic right to an education, and the females are disproportionately disadvantaged. Of course, we here on the panel today, and hopefully our listeners too, are aware of the significance attributed to education in Islam. But at the same time, I think we can't overlook how there are some governments and political groups who are depriving women of this crucial right in the name of Islam. It's attracting a lot of attention in the media these days, and tragically, Islam is getting caught in the crossfire. These cruel actions are fodder for those critics of Islam who label our religion as backwards and oppressive. But hopefully today we can illuminate some of Islam's teachings in relation to women's education and challenge you know, these prevalent misconceptions. Yeah, it is, it is really disappointing to know that such misconceptions are prevalent and Islam promotes the education of girls. Unfortunately, in the world today, some Muslims have forgotten this. 
um, Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said, whoever has two daughters and performs their moral training in a decent manner and offers them education, then Allah makes a place for them in heaven. In his 2021 address, His Holiness said that seeking education for the sake of getting a job is not the only reason that um, women should seek education. We should also seek education for the sake of upbringing um, of our next generation. And there's a famous saying of the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, which is paradise lies under the feet of mothers. His Holiness um, talked about this and explained that the impeccable moral the, the impeccable moral training and education of children will not only be a means of attaining paradise for mothers but can also become a means of her children attaining paradise and he was saying how great an honor and how high a status it is that this has been afforded to women and not men yeah exactly and depriving girls of an education is completely unjustified it violates a basic tenet of islam it's astonishing and quite upsetting, really, that certain extremist groups have manipulated our faith to stop young women and girls from attaining an education that would empower them, help them enrich their communities, and go on to educate future generations. These warped interpretations of Islam, which, frankly, are fueled by ulterior interests, have nothing to do with what actual Islamic scriptures teach. It's incontestable that learning and getting an education are a huge part of my faith. The founder of Islam, the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, laid great stress on this, stating that it is the duty of every Muslim man and woman to seek knowledge. One way the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, promoted education was by releasing literate prisoners of war who were able to teach Muslims who didn't have an education and didn't know how to read and write. This is notable because at that time, education was far less accessible for the common individual and it hadn't been institutionalised in the way it is today. It's really great uh, to hear how passionate you are, Nadia, about this issue and, and thank you for highlighting just how fundamental education and seeking knowledge is in Islam and how it is exemplified in Islamic history. Um, but Nadia, are there any academics or great intellects from the time of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, that inspire you? So there are many remarkable female intellects from the Holy Prophet's time who inspire me. One who was less well known but very accomplished was Ashifa al Adawiya. She was a female companion of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. And the name Ashifa, which means the healer, was given to her due to her medical expertise. She taught women calligraphy, how to read and write, and was appointed to the role of trade secretary in the city of Medina during His Holiness Umrah's Caliphate. May Allah be pleased with him. This is important to consider when we think about how women in the West couldn't obtain high-level roles in society or educational rights until the last century. At my university here in the UK, where I did my bachelor's, women were only properly admitted and able to graduate from as late as 1920. Meanwhile, the first degree-granting university was actually started by a Muslim woman, Fatima al-Fihri, in Morocco in the 9th century. Well, it's really interesting, the comparison between the educational rights of women in Islamic history to, uh, to Western history. I think it is really important to highlight that educational rights and aspirations for Muslim women are, are not a novel concept. Um, so what about today's age? What do educational rights 
And what does advocacy for women's education look like in, within the Ahmadiyya Muslim community? Well, today, our Caliph, His Holiness, is a great advocate of education, in complete consonance with the guidance of Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him. Our Caliph states, and I quote, Excel others in hard work. Excel others in education. That should be the hallmark of an emdi. Allah told the promised Messiah, peace be on him, that the people of your Jamaat will progress in knowledge. Therefore, I advise the youth, immerse yourself in studies to the exclusion of everything else. Advance so much in every field of education that your minimum target is a Nobel Prize. End quote. Now I'm sure we all agree here that getting a Nobel Prize is no easy feat. So the fact that this should be our minimum target really goes to show how high we're meant to be aiming. And when it comes to women's education specifically, His Holiness has many a time highlighted both the import and impact of this. He said before that the key to a nation's progress lies in the hands of the women. Sadly, we don't have time today to delve into all the instances His Holiness has talked about women's education, so I'm just going to give a couple of examples, including an excerpt from an address to the ladies at Germany's annual gathering back in 2016. His Holiness explained, Just as men have been commanded to acquire education, women have also been commanded to educate themselves. As such, Allah the Almighty has granted equal capabilities and means for both men and women to progress and advance. He has granted them both intellect, so that they utilize their wisdom and activate their mental faculties and strive to excel one another. Men cannot claim that they have exclusively been granted intelligence and only they can utilize it to advance. Nor can a woman profess that only she has been given intellect and she alone can progress with it. Allah the Almighty has given a mind, brain, wisdom and knowledge to both men and women to procure knowledge and insight. No man can say that a woman's intellect has reached a peak beyond which she cannot progress and that only men can develop their intellect beyond a certain degree. End quote. So we're sincerely fortunate and truly blessed to be part of His Holiness's community wherein we are so encouraged to fulfil our potential. These words aren't mere rhetoric. In fact, His Holiness mentioned during his last Canada tour that MD women are actually more educated than men. That's fantastic and something we should be proud of, I think. Mm, definitely. And it really goes to show what can be achieved when true Islamic principles regarding women's rights and education are adhered to. Yes. And there are countless female students and professionals from the Ahmadiyya community who are excelling in their fields, be it medicine, teaching, law, architecture, research, and many more. There are lots of programs, departments, and workshops in place which facilitate our advancement. For example, the Ahmadiyya Muslim Women's Student Association, which does a lot of work in the university context, hosting workshops, socials and seminars, as well as providing general welfare support. In the last um, academic year, I was the rep for my university and for a couple of other unis in my area. And although there were COVID-related restrictions in the first half of the year, it was really lovely to meet other MD students, share advice, resources and to hear about others' experiences. 
I enjoyed meeting so many passionate students pursuing a vast scope of fields. There's also the Ahmadiyya Muslim Research Association, also known as AMRA, and this encourages the youth to push the boundaries of knowledge and pursue careers in academia. And this indeed is something that is integral for the dawn of a new Islamic golden age of intellectual progress, which His Holiness has recently encouraged. No wonder then that this importance of education is emphasised from a very young age, as has been made clear in a number of His Holiness's virtual sittings with Nasrat, that is the MD girls aged 7 to 15. Last year, in a meeting with Nasrat from Nigeria, His Holiness expressed, quote, My advice to you all is that you should try to excel in your studies, and all of you should try to learn as much as you can and complete your studies. If you are interested in medicine, do medicine. There is also engineering, law, teaching, or if you want, you can go into research. So try to excel in your education and try to gain as much education as you can. Also, something else I'd like to mention, um, in 2018, the wonderful Student Affairs Department in our community's women's auxiliary organisation was established by His Holiness. This reaffirms the concern that our Caliph has for students' specific needs. The department hosts insightful events for students at different stages and it provides an amazing selection of resources on their online website, lajna.org, and this includes revision advice, problem-solving tips, and university application support. Earlier, you mentioned um, the, annual conve- uh, the annual academic awards distribution, um, and I just want to pick up on that again. It was established by the third caliph, His Holiness Mirza Nasser Ahmed, and it testifies to the great academic heights MD Muslims are reaching by God's grace. From a young age, personally seeing these women go onto the stage and receive their medals from His Holiness ingrained in me the importance of education in Islam. It was really inspiring and motivated my younger self to work hard at school. But beyond the ceremonial collection of physical certificates and prizes, this event highlights the culture of learning in our community, not only for personal development, but spiritual enhancement and for the service of mankind. This is what distinguishes it from secular prize-giving ceremonies. Though of course it is a great honour from our Caliph, receiving a certificate is not the end goal. Rather, this ceremony, for all of us, illustrates how important it is to acquire knowledge and to work diligently to the best of our capacities. This benefits us both in the secular and spiritual domains. Manozabaj, you aptly mentioned earlier how Islam encourages the pursuit of both types of knowledge, and I believe that they supplement each other. To seek and to cherish knowledge are Islamic ideals instilled in us from a young age, which broaden our horizons, develop our appreciation for the blessings we have, and strengthen our relationship with the divine. On a personal note, I'd likewise add that His Holiness provides invaluable support in the form of prayers. Throughout my education, and as recent as a week ago, I've been writing to His Holiness to request prayers for my academic endeavours. By the grace of God, His Holiness has, over the years, responded with the most beautiful and precious prayers, which I've seen fulfilled on many, many occasions. 
Honestly, I can't imagine that there's any worldly leader out there who cares to this degree nor takes such a personal interest in both the spiritual and secular endeavours of their people. You're absolutely right, Nadia. Thank you for such deep insight and and for sharing your personal experience with us. I think that, that many members of the community can relate to the feeling inspired by the celebration of learning that you described and the feeling of being supported by His Holiness during our pursuit of knowledge. Now, focusing on gender equality, in his address last year, His Holiness referenced a particular verse of the Holy Quran of chapter 4, um, verse 2. Um, can you tell us about this verse in particular and what His Holiness explained in relation to this verse and how it establishes gender equality? Yes. So, in this verse, God Almighty states, O ye people, fear your Lord, who created you from a single being, and created therefrom its mate, and from the two spread many men and women. And fear Allah, in whose name you appeal to one another. And fear him particularly respecting ties of, ties of relationship. Verily, Allah watches over you. So before His Holiness cited this verse in last year's address, he underlined that this was one of the verses chosen by the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, for recitation during the Nagar ceremony. That is, the Islamic announcement of marriage. His Holiness went on to explain that this verse shows how man and woman have been created from one nafs, i.e. one being. Though they are different genders, they share common fundamental features. Our Caliph stated last year that, quote, if a man possesses a mental ability or has a certain skill, then a woman can possess it too. If a man has emotions, then so too do women. And this challenges the common misconception that women greatly differ in their capacities, emotions and intellect to men. And this, if I may add, is often an accusation levelled at Muslim communities concerning their treatment of women. Unfortunately, it's an issue that extends beyond borders in societies across the globe. The expression, and created therefrom its mate, doesn't mean that woman was created out of the body of man, unlike the widely held Christian belief that Eve was created from a rib of Adam. Rather, it highlights that men and women belong to the same kind and species, i.e. homo sapiens, thereby possessing the same nature and propensities. Now, I'm not at all a biologist, but I feel it goes without saying that, you know, as humans, we share some intrinsic similarities in terms of our constitutions and physiology, etc. I found His Holiness's explanation of the Nagavas very powerful because it elucidates the importance of women's equality. This verse dispels any idea that women don't possess any intelligence and the notion that men can reign over women according to their will. Women are autonomous and capable individuals who can think and act for themselves. And His Holiness made it very clear that women should be considered similar to men, not inferior. Uh, and what is the significance of reciting this particular verse at the time of marriage? Well... Of the Holy Quran's 6,348 verses, the fact that this verse is one of three verses chosen to be recited when a couple is about to embark upon a new chapter of their lives together speaks volumes. This tradition has been preserved for the last 1,400 years, meaning that every single Muslim couple in this time span 
has heard this verse upon formalizing their marriage. Every Muslim couple is to reflect on the divine wisdom encapsulated in these words. The verse additionally describes how God is Luqiban, i.e. watching over our deeds. And I feel it's worth mentioning here that God not only knows what we do, but also what we think. If we reflect upon this principle of answerability to God in view of the egalitarian principle embedded in this verse, it becomes even clearer that men shouldn't consider women below them, nor mistreat them, neither outside nor within the privacy of their own homes. I'd like to also point out how the verse mentions the fear of God alongside respect for the ties of kinship. This proximity drives home how important it is to treat one's relatives well. In the nikah ceremony, but generally speaking too, this is a reminder to the two parties of their duties to one another. It's a simple yet very powerful verse, which, if followed duly, maintains marital and familial peace, and by extension, society's stability. I think it's important to reflect as well on the fact that the, His Holiness talked about the rights of women in the context of marriage during last year's address in the ladies' arena. If we think about it, a marriage is the most intimate relationship between a man and a woman, and therefore one where rights are most vulnerable. Islam therefore reminds Muslims, at the time of this union, the rights and responsibilities owed to one another. Um, His Holiness explained that though we are different genders, we are the same kind and have similar emotions, like Nadia was saying. So if a man possesses a certain skill or mental ability, then a woman can possess it too. And if a man has emotions, then so do women. Both possess similar sentiments. Basically, men and women are equals. And at the start of the marriage ceremony, the importance of women's rights are explained. So men are told that they cannot reign over women as they wish, that women are intelligent and have emotions and sentiments, and that we can think for ourselves. So His Holiness stated that we should be considered similar to men and not lesser or inferior. Um, The relationship with a close friend is a very strong relationship, and the promised Messiah peace be on him, said that such a bond should be made in marriage. Thank you, Nadia and Anila. Now I'd like to move on to a topic that seems to always take up space in the headlines, that's the Islamic veil. Anila, can you tell us what His Holiness spoke of in relation to the veil and how that might affect the perception of Islamic veiling uh, for both the wider Western society and for young Muslims who, who struggle, who might struggle with veiling? Yes, the uh, Islamic veil is probably one of the most common things that people contest when it comes to Islam or women's rights in Islam because they consider it to be a form of oppression. His Holiness has actually covered this topic many times in various addresses, not just in last year's address at our annual convention. Um, But last year he focused on helping us to understand why the teaching is still relevant as it is not only Muslims but also... Oh, sorry, it's not only non-Muslims, but also Absolutely. some Muslims yeah. who struggle with the concept of the Islamic veil and why Allah instructs Muslims to uphold it. The argument that often comes up is that there is no need for the veil anymore as women are not treated as badly as they were in the time of the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Um, for those who may not know, I did mention it earlier, but in the, in the time of the Prophet Muhammad, um, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, women had no rights or status but were possessions Um, They were the property of their husbands or fathers and were treated pretty badly until Islam came. Mm -hmm. So he, in his address, he said that someone wrote to our caliph um, 
are saying that in these countries, and I assume they mean the Western world here, men do not stare at women as they did in as they do in Asian countries. A statement I'm not sure I agree with. Um, and they asked in in the letter, they asked why they still need why do we still need to wear the veil in these countries? Um, so His Holiness said that we must remember that no instruction from Allah the Almighty can ever be declared redundant. That we cannot say that this teaching is only for a certain time when women were treated badly and had no rights. After all, we have to remember that Islam is a religion revealed for all people of all times. And I think it's probably worth also clarifying here, or making the distinction at least between what we mean by Islamic veiling and the likely or more common understanding of, of Muslim women wearing the headscarves or hijabs. So Islamic veiling is actually a holistic principle which is prescribed to all Muslims, and irrespective of even gender. And actually the concept of veiling encompasses behaviour, socialisation, lifestyle, as well as physical dress. So it's about maintaining modesty between the sexes. Uh, meanwhile, in Western society, the term veiling is really only associated with those women who wear headscarves or hijabs or niqabs, etc. Yeah, thank you for that clarification. Um, whenever the concept of the Islamic veil... Um, that is the definition referring to lifestyle comes up we are always reminded that the instruction is given to men first in the holy quran chapter chapter 24 verse 31 it says say to the believing men that they restrain their eyes and guard their private parts in the following verse verse 32 muslim women are then instructed to do the same and then asked not to disclose our natural and artificial beauty and asked to cover ourselves so last year's address was no exception. His Holiness, after reminding us of this fact, went on to say that the promised Messiah, um, peace, uh, His Holiness Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, peace be upon him, stated that a true believer should not let their gaze wander. They should lower their gaze as instructed and refrain from factors that may lead one to look at that which is impermissible. The promised Messiah, peace be upon him, also said that we should remember that the Islamic veil is not a prison but a barrier which prevents free mixing of men and women and saves them from stumbling. His Holiness explained that it is not a valid argument to say that we don't need to practice veiling or wear modest clothing just because men are not looking at us. I like to look at it as Islam works on the basis of prevention is better than cure, mm. which I think I read somewhere. Um, thus the veiling can be looked at as preventing certain situations from happening and a safeguard from the ills that arise in society. Yes, exactly. And just to reiterate that the Islamic veiling is actually very holistic and it's, it's a lifestyle that's conducive to modesty and humility, privacy, as well as conviction of faith. And when practiced sincerely, it serves to safeguard the rights of both men and women. Yes. And um, in modern society, women's rights are constantly being usurped in all spheres, a practice that has persisted for decades. In his address, His Holiness quotes the promised Messiah, uh, peace be upon him, by saying, Islam cuts at the root of lust. Just look at what is happening in Europe. All so-called developed countries are included in this. What teaching has led to this result? Is this an account of the veil or due to the removing, or due to removing the veil? I mean, this is still applicable today. There are so many news stories about women being mistreated and so many more stories we don't even know about. Nadia and I recently talked about how women in the world today do not feel safe. So many women are harassed or attacked and don't feel at ease when in public or mixed spaces. The Islamic veil helps to protect us, our modesty, and gives us a sense of security. His Holiness also gave a quick reminder to us of the guidance given on what the veil should be covering. 
He said, The promised Messiah, peace be upon him, says to cover the hair of your head, your cheeks and chin, and it is the instruction of the Holy Quran to place a covering over your bosom and not to display your beauty. You should ensure this. I just want to end with this quote, which His Holiness ended with. He said, Today it is the responsibility of every Ahmadi lady and every Ahmadi girl to inform the world of the status, honour and dignity of women. For this, without succumbing to any inferiority complex, everyone ought to make efforts. His Holiness has mentioned on previous occasions that some girls and ladies struggle with an inferiority complex when it comes to their religion. As I mentioned earlier, it is vital that we educate ourselves and increase our religious knowledge so that we can stand up for ourselves. Only recently I had to defend myself as a stranger approached me whilst I was out and tried to tell me that I, need, that I don't need to cover up. It went on for quite some time as well. It wasn't simply a why do you wear that. Mm. Um, they were trying to convince me that I was in a free country and I had rights here and I didn't have to listen to other people. Um, they even, um, and luckily, uh, I was able to respond, thankfully, because um, I had some basic religious, you know, mm -hmm. I educated myself. So I was be able to come back to the rights mm -hmm. comment with saying, well, Islam has granted us rights long before um, mm. we were granted rights here. Um, and I was actually with a non-Muslim friend at the time and she commended me. Uh, she said she was holding herself back uh, because I was handling it calmly. And But without having that, having educated myself, I wouldn't have been able to stand up for myself. Maybe I would have frozen up. Yeah. Um, so it's really important that we as Ahmadi Muslim women keep increasing our religious knowledge so that we can defend ourselves and the world can see that we're not oppressed in any way, shape or form. And also them knowing that you... You're, you're covering yourself up because you want to cover yourself yes, up. Yeah. <laughs> so that person obviously didn't realise that. No, and she's, no. Yeah, she still couldn't accept it. But. No. <laughs> oh, sorry you had to go through that. It's not something really should, we should. And, and living in a society where Islamic veiling just shows that we live in a society where it's not just not practised in general, but yeah. it's also actively um, looked down upon and belittled. And it makes it difficult for Muslim women to dress in a manner that is Islamically appropriate. And as you said earlier, arming ourselves with religious knowledge and understanding of the true meaning of modesty and veiling can really, really help to fortify our convictions and, and improve our practice. And I think it's quite ironic, actually, how you were told that you are that you live in a free country, but you were also told that you shouldn't be wearing something. <laughs> also, sorry, Lazar, I have to add this, also the fact that I've personally experienced, and I'm sure you all agree with me, that actually you also, we regularly experience the fact that people actually approach us with so much respect. More yes. com that's more common yeah. than people being negative. Mm, yeah. um, I've certainly experienced that. Yeah, mm -hmm. I agree. Um, um, we're also told, um, so secular laws and policy can't establish and maintain women's rights as they pertain only to a small selection of women who fit within society's view of what it means to be free. Um, but women's rights were established by God through Islam and, and consequently are capable, very capable, of safeguarding our rights themselves in the long term. I think we've had a really in-depth in, uh, discussion about His Holiness's last address in the ladies' arena of the annual convention and it feels really refreshing to go back over his words and explore new meanings and perspectives so just before we move on from this, are there any other notable points that His Holiness addressed in his 2021 speech that you feel really resonated or had a special impact on you, Tahira? Um, well, actually, there were so many points that had an impact on me, and I think that um, everyone that had the privilege of listening would agree. Um, 
And one uh, particular reminder by His Holiness uh, to open our spiritual eyes in today's world is something that I think we all need. Um, and I, for one, I would say that I really appreciated uh, the reminder because it's, I mean, it's so easy in our daily tasks to become so embroiled in our lives that we kind of lose focus of what's really important. Um, and actually to view the world with our spiritual eyes, which is what His Holiness was guiding us to do, and to really be conscious of our roles and responsibilities with relation to God, um, kind of the wider society, and also to ourselves. I think we can all we all benefited from that, um, anyone that listened benefited. And I know Adia, uh, Nadia earlier, um, she touched on this in the context of education, but um, I want to really emphasise the point because um, contrary to misconception, as Nadia was saying earlier, you know, Islam did establish and safeguard women's rights in education, marriage and all areas of life. And this was over 1400 years ago. Um, and for me, I would say that listening to His Holiness's address last year, you know, really hearing uh, these values being upheld, um, I think it, had, it certainly had an impact on my heart. And I think the hearts of all women who listened to the address um, and I'd also say that the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, with God's guidance, you know, he taught society how women should actually be respected, how they should be revered. Um, and in fact, um, I think anyone that uh, studies Islam would will realise that no religion, no worldly law um, kind of outlines our rights in as much detail as Islam. And that's contrary to misconceptions, you know. Um, and I mention misconceptions here because in his address, His Holiness made um, gave us a very poignant reminder, and it certainly was that for me anyway, that actually it's the responsibility of each of us as Ahmadi Muslim women to, um, you know, clear up misconceptions because they're about us. Um, they're about Muslim women. Um, and I certainly don't want anyone to have incorrect knowledge or assumptions about me um, or my faith. And if I don't want that, then I actually think that, it, you know, the responsibility is mine um, to dispel those misconceptions, to make that effort to get rid of them. Um, so, for example, when His Holiness spoke and addressed us, stating that, you know, women can have the same spiritual rank as men, uh, which is contrary to um, what some people believe, I really appreciated uh, that. Um, and one topic that we were talking about earlier, which we were talking about the veil, the hijab, the head covering. Um, so there are different terms uh, used for it. Um, but essentially, it's about what Munaza was saying earlier. It's, it's a lifestyle. It's about dressing modestly. And part of dressing modestly is covering my head. Um, and so His Holiness also did speak about the hijab at the annual convention last year. And Anila has just told us in so much depth about it. So I won't continue that on. But um, I would say that... Um, I myself, I always try and make an effort to interact with all parts of society and sometimes my children will really tease me and they're quite embarrassed by, by me. But I, it's, it goes back to what I was saying earlier. You know, I really feel indebted that it's, I have a duty to make an effort because people see my scarf before I speak. So they recognise me as a Muslim woman. Um, so I, I personally feel that sometimes people can be anxious when interacting. So it's my duty to kind of get rid of misconceptions um, that other people have and concerns and, you know, be open. Um, so that people can see that actually my faith really liberates me. I want, I want to communicate that. And actually, it supports me, my hopes in life. And actually, I, I would go so far as to say that I don't know where I'd be without my faith. Um, it's culture and it's custom that holds us back. And it's certainly not Islam. And I think that any religion that would hold us back, you know, it can't be a true one. Exactly. Yeah. We're just going to stop now for a quick news break. And we'll be back. Please come back and join us for our discussion to continue. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum, peace be on you, and welcome back to a very special episode of Faith in Focus on the Voice of Islam Radio. 
Um, so before the break, Daira, we were talking a little bit about Hazor's address from the year 2021, and it was a really nice summary of the impact of His Holiness's address. So thank you for that, Daira. Now, I mentioned earlier that the UK convention usually hosts 30,000 guests. Uh, this includes providing accommodation, three meals per day, seemingly bottomless barrels of tea and many other services. Treating guests with respect and extending hospitality is not only part of the annual convention's ethos, but also a fundamental practice within Islam. The value of hospitality is mentioned in the Holy Quran itself, which gives us an idea of its importance within our religion and faith. We find with reference to the, the Prophet Abraham, on whom be peace, it is mentioned twice in the Holy Quran. First in chapter Surah Darya, when the guests greeted Prophet Abraham, on whom be peace, with salam, and Prophet Abraham responded in kind. And when uh, this can be also found in chapter 51, verse 26, where it states, and I quote, When they entered upon him and said, Peace, he said, Peace be on you. They were all strangers. In another verse of the Holy Quran, Prophet Abraham, on whom be peace, made very prompt arrangements to serve his guests, who were complete strangers, that had come to visit. Uh, so stating in chapter 11, verse 70, I quote, And surely our messengers came to Abraham with glad tidings. They said, We bid you peace. He answered, Peace be on you, and was not long in bringing a roasted calf. So this demonstrates the Islamic preference uh, for the for immediate hospitality extended in the boss, best possible manner and without question and the best manner that you know one's means allow and so in the case of prophet abraham that would be a roasted calf and whilst it may be considered insignificant in the wider scheme of things or in the wider scheme of our religious faith uh, muslims are taught that god loves this quality of hospitality it's a characteristic of islam and a hallmark of the blessed character of the holy prophet peace and blessings of allah be upon him and and through this he brought about a transformative change in the people who were first introduced to islam and I'd like to share a tradition of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, that most children are taught at a very young age and was also um, stated uh, in the address of, the Holy, of, of His Holiness yesterday during the Friday sermon. So the narration goes like this. So once a traveller came to the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, who sent a message to his household to send some food. Unfortunately, there was nothing in the house except water. So the Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, asked his companions who among them could arrange for some food. And an Ansari said that he would. But when he went home to ask his wife, Umm Sulaim, may Allah be pleased with her, to prepare some food for the guest, she said they only had enough to feed the children. So to ensure that the guest was served, they sent the children to bed hungry, which we can uh, absolutely <laughs> say that is a really difficult task to do. And when the food was ready and the guests arrived, the companion got up on the pretext of adjusting the lamp, extinguished the lamp, and uh, the companion and his wife pretended to eat in the dark by making chewing sounds while the guest ate. The next day, Hazrat Abu Talha, the Ansari, may Allah be pleased with him, went to see the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, who, who remarked that on your good treatment of my guest last night, even Allah was, was smiling with joy. So beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> so and, and these events touch on 
how hospitality can lead to the negation of one's own needs to ensure that the needs of others are met. And His Holiness Mirza Masur Ahmad, may Allah be his helper, the Caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, has on many occasions spoken of the need to fulfill the obligations that we owe to other people and to focus less on the rights that, that we think we're deserving of. And if we consider that everything we have is a, an absolute blessing from God, a gift given to us um, to use in the way of God, then we wouldn't cover, covet anything and we would show no hesitation in spending it on others. And when the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, received his, first, his very first revelation and was completely awestruck by the experience, one of the qualities uh, which Hazrat Khadija, may Allah be pleased with her, mentioned uh, was of hospitality. And he, she assured him that God would not be um, angry with him or leave him because he is a hospitable person. So hospitality is not just a small, trivial practice. It is actually one of the qualities of prophets of God. So coming back to the present, what does hospitality at the annual convention look like? And how do the volunteers manage the immense task of hosting so many guests? So the hospitality of guests is also among the tasks given to the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, who inaugurated the tradition of Jalsa Salana, the annual convention, God revealed to him that people in their multitudes would come to see him. The promised Messiah, peace be upon him, urged his followers to make every effort to attend the annual convention, and therefore attendees are actually considered guests of the promised Messiah. So these are individuals who have answered the call of the promised Messiah and travel to attend Jalsa. So those who have been to any previous conventions will be familiar with the hearty and very delicious meals <laughs> served to all attendees from the on-site kitchen or langar. Nadia, could you tell us a bit about the history and, and purpose of the langar khana? Of course. So the langar khana is the Urdu term referring to the public kitchens of our community. It was established under divine command by the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, to serve the guests who, had, who came to hear his message in Gardian, as well as people who were visiting for other reasons. In the early days, not only did the Lunga organise food provisions, but board and lodging too, and all at no cost. What's interesting is that the langar had very humble origins in the kitchen of Hazrat Sayyidah Nusrat Jahan Begum, may Allah be pleased with her, the noble wife of the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, affectionately known as Hazrat Amajan. In the Lunga's initial stages, it was actually financed by the promised Messiah, peace be upon him himself. In practical terms, the hospitality arrangements weren't allocated to a specific person, but it was Hazrat Amajan who instantly took on a key role in hosting the convention's guests with the help of her female family members. At times, Hazrat Amajan would pay out of her own pocket for food arrangements. In one instance, she even sold some of her jewellery when funds had run out. Hazrat Amajan would also frequently advise workers to be mindful of guests' needs and comforts. She was an incredibly caring and hospitable lady, and serving guests was something that gave her great happiness. 
As guest numbers grew, the lungo had to be moved to a new site where cooking could be done on a larger scale to meet the needs of more people. Even once it was moved, the promised messiah, peace be upon him, would still stay up to date on what was being cooked and ensure that everyone's needs were being accommodated. Hazrat Amajan likewise would go to the langar site to make sure the arrangements were being prepared to her satisfaction. Now, in every country where the community has been established, you'll find that there's a langar khana in operation for anyone who visits our community centres. Well, thank you for that, uh, Nadia, and for that insight. It really reiterates how hospitality is the shining quality of God's prophets as well as his pious servants. And hospitality extends beyond delicious food um, and is manifest in a number of other ways at the Jalsa too. And you touched on some of these just now. Could you perhaps elaborate a little? Mm-hmm. Certainly. So our community has been profoundly blessed. So today we have thousands of volunteers and resources to cater to the convention's guests and this includes bedding supplies, on-site accommodation tents, shower facilities and hygiene teams. Our Lungo has massive kitchen facilities now including a state-of-the-art flatbread plant Um, and interestingly all the cooking at the convention is done on the men's side. Also, although, as I mentioned earlier, originally a branch of the Lungo did deal with lodging arrangements, etc., um, this is now mainly managed by what is called the Ziafat department, and this literally means um, hospitality. Now, I'd like us to cast our minds back to the Promised Messiah's era once more when resources and funding were limited. In those early years, guests were provided bedding by the MD locals of Guardian. The promised Messiah, peace be upon him, of course led by example. There's an incident I read recently about a companion who had visited the promised Messiah whilst Jalsa Salana preparations were underway and guests had begun arriving. The companion saw the Messiah, peace be upon him, sitting on a bed without any bedding. After inquiring about this, the companion discovered that the promised Messiah, peace be on him, had sent it for the guests. Bearing in mind that the annual convention in those days took place in the winter months in India and that the um, location was a rural village, the nights would get quite chilly. There wasn't any central heating or any of the modern comforts that we have, so this was really quite a sacrifice. Despite the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, also having the eminent status of a prophet of God, he exemplified the humility you described earlier, Manazah, where one's needs are negated to fill those of others. And also you were mentioning how hospitality is a shining quality of prophets of God. Um, And I'd like to mention um, a companion um, who was dear to the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, His Holiness Hakim Olvi Nuruddin, may Allah be pleased with him, who later was to become the first caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. He too was keen to ensure guests' comfort. Within the year that followed the first ever Jalsa Salana, His Holiness had a guest house built specifically for the guests of the convention. Now, there's so many other examples of sacrifice throughout the Jalsa Salana's history and from all around the world. And this is just a really small glimpse that I've been able to give today. But what I'd like to emphasize is that it's 
the sacrifices and prayers of these holy personages from our community's early days, which have really enabled the annual convention to expand, flourish and become what it is today. And we're so fortunate to be witnessing this with our own eyes. Yeah, absolutely, Nadia. And Jazakallah for bringing our attention to that again and reminding us of that fact. And um, ever since those first annual conventions or Jalsa Salanas, the practice of hospitality means the needs of all attendees are met. And at our site here today, this includes everything from catering to different appetites, um, accommodation, transport to the site and around the site, as well as even childcare provisions and provisions for the speakers of different languages. There's even disability access has been considered, as well as healthcare. And no sphere of uh, requirement is left unattended. And traditionally, the first Friday, the Friday sermon of the first day of Jalsa is on the subject of um, hospitality. And His Holiness said that the Convention's hospitality is carried out on a communal level, um, as well as individually by people looking after their personal guests who travel specifically for the annual convention. And His Holiness's words of guidance reach the ears of thousands of volunteers, including women and girls, who give up their time to be part of the annual convention's activities in, in all the various departments. His Holiness actually reminds us that hospitality is the task of almost all duty holders and in fact makes up about 80% or more of JALSA tasks. Now, over the years, the experience built up within each team of volunteers has meant that the different components work together like, like a well-oiled machine to ensure that all the needs of guests can be met. Um, because of the pandemic, this year's convention is attended by um, far fewer international guests. However, previous years have seen the convention attended by people from all over the world and all walks of life. And they use whatever resources are available to them to make the journey to attend this short but auspicious event. Now, travel for the sake of one's faith is not a novel concept and it does in fact form part of the very fibre of Islam and it holds a significant role in the life of the Holy Prophet of Islam, peace and blessings be upon him, and even makes up one of the five fundamental pillars of Islam. Sarah, can you tell us about how travel or migration featured in the life of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, and how it featured in the spread of Islam during that time? Yes, I think, um, you know, a lot of what was said and done at the time of the Holy Prophet, um, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was recorded by his companions. So we have, you know, a wealth of information about what was happening um, in that time, although it was so long ago, it was well recorded. And I think it first falls uh, to me to mention that Islam is a truly global religion. And you mentioned our international visitors, many of whom we may be missing um, mm. and feeling the loss of this year. But, you know, Islam, since its very earliest days, um, Muslims were not defined by age or gender or race, by their wealth or by their status. You know, Islam truly is a religion which calls to everybody. Um, it was, and it still is, inclusive of all and of everybody. And this is the spirit we have previously witnessed here, and we witness it this year as well, um, at the Jalsa, the annual convention. So, you know, yes, to and also just to point out that we've got the flags here at the front of um, the Jalsa Guard, the big Jalsa stage, and they represent how global Islam is. We have hundreds of flags there, um, and it's lovely to see them flying and to know that Islam and Ahmadiyyad is in all corners of the globe. 
Um, but to address your question, migration has formed, you know, a very intrinsic and critical part of the history of Islam. In fact, you know, for those who allege, and we talked about misconceptions earlier, one misconception is that, you know, God forbid, Islam was spread through coercion or through the sword. Um, but this is actually a gross misconception because the migration history of early Muslims, um, if you look at that, it makes it very clear that this allegation is erroneous and has no basis in fact. So the early Muslims, um, they experienced a lot of persecution at the hands of, of, of people in their native homeland and they migrated in order to escape the persecution. They did not take up the sword or go against that. They, they peacefully migrated. Um, so, you know, also we have the Islamic calendar and we've just had the new Islamic year recently and this has a different date to the Gregorian calendar. So, you know, we've just entered the year 1444 according to the Islamic calendar. And this date is not taken from the birth of the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, um, but it's actually taken from an event called Hijra. So the entire Islamic calendar is taken from this time and Hijra means migration. And it specifically refers to the time when the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, migrated from his hometown of Mecca, where he had lived all his life, and he went to live in Medina. This move was made after 13 years, 13 difficult years, um, during which he had made his claim of prophethood. And they were years of persecution when boycotts had taken place and there was a physical and a financial toll on Muslims who followed this uh, prophethood and the professed faith, faith of Islam. Um, you know, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, had seen his loved ones suffer because of these actions of others. And, you know, there had come a point where there was no possibility of living peacefully in Mecca any longer. So, you know, as an indicator of significance, that, that's when he migrated to the town of Medina, which was some distance away. Um, so it's a great lesson for Muslims that we migrate in the face of persecution. We don't necessarily fight back or take up aggression. Um, and certainly the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, that was not his response. His response was to migrate to a place of safety. Um, and it's in, important that this, this migration is led to the dating of the uh, Muslim calendar. Yeah, absolutely. So in times of persecution, we're taught that prayer is the only recourse we have. And if that is insufficient, then migration is the answer. And what you say, Sarah, is really interesting. And as you say, shows that travel or migration holds a significant role in our faith as, you know, as the starting point of a calendar. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm a geographer and um, I know that travel broadens the mind and it's great to go out and about and see new places, meet new people. You learn so much. And Islam absolutely advocates travel in many different forms. So we know, of course, that the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, um, before his call to prophethood, he was a, a trader. And he would take a caravan of goods from the city of Mecca, which is in present-day Saudi Arabia, um, as far as Syria and Damascus there, in order to trade and raise a profit. And, and this is a journey that would take many months. And we also know that um, he was initially employed in this role by um, his first wife, Hazrat Khadija, may Allah be pleased with her, before their marriage. Mm. So she had heard of his reputation as a trustworthy and an honest person, and she selected him to work in her business. Uh, we're talking about female empowerment Absolutely. earlier on. Yeah. Um, so she was a wealthy 
business lady and she chose him to take her goods and that's a a huge position of trust to travel long distances for maybe months at a time with somebody else's possessions to sell them and to be trusted to come back and return the money um, honestly so from this we know that the holy prophet Muhammad peace and blessings uh, be upon him even before his prophethood was known as honest and trustworthy Um, and I think that stands to his character uh, most definitely so you know travel in also applies to the life of every modern Muslim you know it's not mis- merely just a historical event you know there are well known traditions which say that Muslims should seek knowledge even if you have to go as far as China so obviously 1400 years ago China was a, a great distance over mountains and exactly. difficult terrain um, but it, it shows how much travel is encouraged to it seems seek. seems so far away today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, certainly during COVID, it was very far, wasn't it? No planes to, were grounded. So. To imagine it then is just mm. surreal, really. Yes, yeah. yeah. It, it implies that the pursuit of travel, or to mm. travel for the pursuit of knowledge, is, is limitless, or yeah, unless there's no limit to it, you can go as, as far as you like in, in your search. And we spoke earlier about how integral knowledge is to the life of, of Muslim women, and that that uh, tradition it applies to men and women it's not just for men it applies equally so you know muslims have long traveled to new new places and unfortunately it's not taught very much in school but uh, ibn battuta was a muslim scholar who he was from the 14th century and he went all the way from north africa traveling across north africa to um Saudi Arabia where there was the Hajj and then he also went further afield into Southeast Asia and and the Far East. So he recorded everything in diaries um, and he you know he was given a lot of hospitality as we talked about before wherever he went in the Muslim world the tradition was for three days he would be given free lodging and food so he was able to travel freely um, across these vast areas and his his um, diaries make a very interesting reading Um, it also shows actually how Islam you know thinks about every aspect so first of all you're encouraged to travel Mm -hmm. you know because you there's so much to gain from that knowledge and finding of God and but then to also to look after these guests this is why we're encouraged to be Mm -hmm. hospitable yes I think Islam always gives you the overarching principle but also the practicality so it doesn't leave anything out but it's just so amazing how the theory and the practice Mm -hmm. come together so beautifully yes it's just amazing how they both come together you know for me I think it's so perfectly Absolutely. And I mean, I started off um, speaking about how Islam is a global religion and it's for everybody, regardless of gender or or race or nationality. And the best example we have of that, of course, is the annual Hajj, the pilgrimage to, to Mecca, which is one of the pillars of faith and is incumbent on every Muslim to perform in their lifetime if they are able, again, with the practicalities, if, if you're able. Mm-hmm. Um, and most people strive to do that. So, you know, we see people coming from all over the world for the sake of faith to converge on Mecca and to participate in this very sacred ritual. And it's a spiritual pinnacle for many Muslims. And it's definitely an experience unlike any other. Thank you, Sarah. And you mentioned Hajj. Now, listeners may be familiar with the image of uh, millions of Muslims dressed in white um, enveloping the Kaaba. Or, or, you know, huge numbers of Muslims dressed in white, all surrounding the Kaaba. Can you explain what's happening in this image that we all con- that just appears in our minds, and why this event is so significant in the life of Muslims? 
So, you know, the Kaaba is the holiest place of worship for Muslims. Um, it is its, itself a smallish building with a cubic design, and it's located in the city of Mecca, which is in modern-day uh, Saudi Arabia, and it's covered with a uh, black cloth. So this building represents many things for Muslims, including prayer, sacrifice, and belonging. You know, a place of worship has been located at that very spot for millennia. So first, the prophet Abraham, peace be upon him, he settled his what we know from the Holy Quran, it, it outlines these events that have happened. Um, he settled his wife Hajra and their son Ishmael, may Allah be pleased with them there. And when that happened, it was an uncultivated valley, you know, valley and an isolated place. And if you can imagine Saudi Arabia being very, very hot, Mecca's mountainous as well, it's a harsh, harsh environment. So Hazrat Hajra, may Allah be pleased with her, she ran um, between the two hills searching for water because, you know, obviously in the desert water is essential, it's difficult. There was nothing particularly obvious to her when she first settled there. And she ran between these two hills and eventually a spring emerged beneath the kicking feet of her infant child who was laying on the floor. And those hills are known as Safa and Marwa. And visitors to Mecca walk between them as part of their rituals on the Hajj or on the Umrah. So the Kaaba itself is a house of worship. And every Muslim everywhere in the world faces towards Mecca when they pray their five daily prayers. So it features prominently in the life of every Muslim. And again, it's this um, sign of the unity of Islam that wherever you are, you face Mecca when you pray. And that unites Muslims, whatever their position in life, and it gives a unity um, which is really empowering and and um, it's nice to feel that sense of community with the Muslims around the world and it is as I mentioned one of the five pillars of Islam for Muslims to attend Hajj to perform the pilgrimage if they are able so the pilgrimage of Hajj before the time of high speed planes uh, was not simple because it's been 1400 years that people have been travelling there so it traditionally was not a simple or an easy one so embarking on this journey was an opportunity to achieve the pleasure of Allah through sacrifice and worship and it was actually a real sign of commitment to your faith Mm -hmm. if you were willing to spend the money and the time and the risk um, to travel from distant lands it's showing a real commitment to your faith in God yeah and like I say Hajj is incredibly important for Muslims and and the journey to the Kaaba forms part of this Hajj as it involves sacrifice and struggle and you talk about the struggle the difficulties in in, in those days but even in modern times you mm. know the sacrifice is great and both financially and physically um we, those the struggles and the sacrifices required to complete the Hajj can be monumental for people but mm. imagine if we think that now things before you know so multiple times more, yeah. worse so can you talk a little bit about, about the, um, some of the rituals of Hajj? Mm-hmm. You know, the Hajj lasts for a few days each year at a designated time in the uh, month of Zulhijjah. So at that time, the days of Hajj, and they're the same for every Muslim, up to three million pilgrims will descend on Mecca. And Mecca is not a huge city. It was certainly started out as quite a small town. It has grown, but it's not a, a, a major city. And uh, they arrive in Mecca and they will circle the Kaaba as part of the Hajj rituals. However, when it's not the days of Hajj, Muslims can still visit the Kaaba. They can perform the Umrah, which is a circambulation of the Kaaba itself. And they can also do the journey between Safa and Marwa at any other time of the year. For either type of visits, the pilgrims will dress in ihram. 
and this is a white seamless cloth so this is uh, predominantly worn by men but women will wear very often white and, and very simple clothes so this is the beauty of Islamic teachings I mean this was the white pilgrims you mentioned earlier mm. that we see so commonly in, in photos or videos of Hajj but you know it's a beauty of the Islamic teachings that everyone no matter their status must arrive in these clothes for Umrah and Hajj they should be seamless without design without labels so this indicates that we're all Muslims are equal regardless of their wealth their family or their nationality there are no designer symbols or um, jewellery so I think perhaps some of the younger generation may, <laughs> may struggle to uh, want to wear that but a, a pilgrim from the poorest backgrounds is dressed in the same manner as a king or a queen mm. there's a great equality there and this sense of equality is intrinsic to Islam and it's a fundamental principle of the social justice and the principles of equality which form the foundation of the faith so from the very onset of Islam, there's been a very wide social mix within the Muslim community, and we see that here at Jalsa also. Um, there were followers from the Quraysh who were noble families, such as uh, Hazrat Abu Bakr, may Allah be pleased with him, and Hazrat Khadija. Um, so they were, you know, they were quite well-known, notable people. Um, but there were also informed, uh, former slaves and servants and people who were not very well educated so we know that um yes Hazrat Bilal may Allah be pleased with him and orphans and widows those whose society had marginalized and mistreated um the white robes of ihram symbolized that only righteousness distinguishes between people it's not money it's not wealth it's not your background it's righteousness which we should all be striving to achieve yeah and and the other thing I was just thinking that the other thing that um joins the rich and the poor together is, is not the type of clothes you're wearing but just the challenge of keeping it on you that might be the biggest challenge that everyone faces so thank you Sarah the Islamic traditions tell us that the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him stated that the prayers of a traveller are amongst those that will always be accepted by God but are there any conditions to this and why are the prayers of a traveller granted such a status um well, I think that both these questions are interlinked, so hopefully in answering one I'll be able to answer the other one too. But just listening to Sarah, I think, and hearing about travel, uh, I think that gives part of the answer to us. You know, <laughs> you're in a state of kind of change um, and vulnerable. Um, and, you know, that's part of the reason why prayers during travel are um, accepted by God. Um, but for a more detailed answer, I would um, refer our listeners to a Friday sermon which His Holiness Mirza Masroor Ahmed may Allah be his helper actually gave in 2008 um, and I was having listened uh, listen to it just before I came on air and he uh, during that Friday sermon he spoke about um, prayers during one's travel and His Holiness actually set out for us the blessed model of the Prophet Muhammad peace and blessings of Allah be upon him and explained how he would actually pray when he was embarking on a journey uh, when he would return from a journey and also while he'd be on that journey as well so um, following this example His Holiness actually explained that the travels of a believer are actually to seek the pleasure of Allah and they're also a mark of thankfulness uh, for his blessings as well so Travellers who are, are believers, um, they, they would uh, begin and finish their travels with specific prayers, which are stated in the Holy Quran, um, and those that the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, set, also set out for us. And so actually, 
Um, like all the other deeds and actions of a Muslim that like we've been talking about hospitality today, you know, traveling is also to seek Allah's pleasure um, and to establish goodness um, and to maintain that goodness as well. Um, as I said, Sarah's just been talking about pilgrimage. Um, so if the important thing is that if righteousness is present in the pilgrim, then that you know journey is accepted by God. Um, and when His Holiness explained this, he said that in any case or any situation, actually, only that journey or travel will absorb God's uh, blessings in which righteousness is present um, and that that traveller intends good works. Um, so that's not to say that travel for leisure is hectic, you know, it's not included. Of course it is too. Um, and it, uh, it can become a source of attaining Allah's pleasure. But the important thing, again, to remember is that righteousness in the person must be present. Um, because only a person who's righteous um, can be counted amongst true believers. Absolutely. But how can we cultivate righteousness and how is this related to travelling? I think that's a very detailed question. I'll try, I'll try my best to answer it. Um, so the first condition, I think, is to to step onto the path of righteousness. It's a sincere repentance. And His Holiness actually spoke about that yesterday. So it's changing ourselves in a way where we repent in a way that we will never go back to those uh, mistakes that we made earlier. You know, it distances a believer from sin. So in essence, a believer makes a resolute objective, you know, to shun all types of ill, all types of bad deeds and, you know, really persevere to adopt uh, morality and also good deeds. Um, and this would lead one to worship of God. And actually, this state would then, you know, kind of enables us to progress onto the next state where we start to praise God under all circumstances, you know, whether we're in hardship or ease, you know, that doesn't matter anymore. Um, so then a journey that's kind of made to spread good, it becomes a source of blessings. And if we consider that righteousness must be present, then we can begin to understand that, you know, this takes real effort. Um, and then bearing that in mind, that, you know, righteousness, it requires constant effort, we can then reflect and understand why the prayers of a traveller, you know, have such high status. You know, when we think about travelling, we're often, you know, I don't, but everybody else, I think everyone would agree with me. We're so focused on where we're going, what we're going to do when we get there, and you know, and it really takes someone with righteousness in them to turn their attention from the world towards God. Mm. Um, when you're travelling, you won't perhaps feel you know the safety you do when you're in your in your home because you're in a state of change. You know, you're not um, you don't feel the comfort that you do within when you're within your home, and and to turn your attention towards God, you know, towards being grateful and thankful. And then also praying for your own own needs or, you know, anyone else as well. I mean, I think that takes real dedication. And in my mind, um, that kind of explains a, um, a bit about why the prayers of a traveller are accepted. Um, and I, I think, think also to, to remember the people you left behind as well is quite good. Because, you know, when you're travelling, it's easy to forget those people are at home. But if you're having the presence of mind to forget your own vulnerability, as you mentioned, and think mm. about the people at home then that's also a kindness and a good act and Islam encourages those things. So that's I'm part sure of the righteousness that we're yeah, saying. Yeah. And actually when you think about the immensity of that statement, you know, the prayers of a traveller are amongst those that are, will always be accepted by God. I mean, I don't about you, but it makes me want to get up and travel, um, you know, so that you can pray because you know that those prayers are going to be accepted. But also be particularly careful about what you ask for in those prayers as well. Yeah. You know, you should be careful... Um, careful what you say um, but I think it's just such a beautiful tradition and I think just another blessing from God um, I mean it's a reward for the righteous because you know God knows what's in our hearts 
And uh, kind of when we consider the reasons for acceptance of prayers, we know from the writings of the founder of the Ahmadiyya community in Islam, His Holiness Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, on whom be peace, that the acceptance of prayers demands eagerness. And I think that someone who, um, you know, kind of like we've just said, that amidst the kind of chaos of a journey, you know, when you turn your attention towards prayer, um, when you have that eagerness, um, and perhaps you won't be able to pray on on a journey otherwise, I mean... because you're so focused on what's happening, where you're going, like we were saying earlier, uh, the nature of travel, kind of the associated upheaval with it, it kind of makes you realise why those prayers are accepted, that commitment that you're making by turning your attention towards God. Um, But also, I think, just as well, to say that um, we haven't been able to travel in the past couple of years. Many people have been stuck at home. Absolutely. And so it actually makes you realise we should be grateful for the opportunity to travel as well. Absolutely. And actually, His Holiness wrote that prayer, which lacks eagerness, is mere words. And eagerness is actually inspired by two things. Um, The first, he said, was that the worshipper believes God to be all-powerful and perfect. And then also that he considers himself to be helpless and and weak. And actually, we are. You know, we're vulnerable during travel. And, um, you know, when we go to wish our kind of our family or friends, when you wish them off at the airport or the train station, you're kind of praying for them, you know, because you're aware of that uh, kind of vulnerability. Um, And a person that believes in God, you know, as most powerful, I think then you feel that weakness even more um, when you're away from home and traveling. Um, And so when you kind of turn your attention towards God on a journey, you know, it's so beautiful because actually God has reassured us um, that prayer, our prayers will be heard and accepted. Um, and I think that what we need to concentrate on is kind of striving to attain that righteousness required for the prayer to be accepted. Um, I mean, you referred, one of you referred earlier to a narration from the life of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. Um, well, we did. We've just, just been talking about it, you know, about the prayers of a, um, a traveller being um, accepted. Um, and in the tradition, that what the Holy Prophet, um, peace be upon him, is actually reported to have said is that three supplications are answered, there being no doubt about them. So that of a father, that of a traveller, and that of a person who's been wronged. So, um, you know, yes, the traveller has been given this status because of how perilous travel can be. Um, and this can be related to another tradition in which uh, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, has also advised that Muslims should not travel alone. Um, so kind of that adds to um, our understanding, so to speak. And, you know, um, this shows that, you know, again, travelling presents that kind of uh, vulnerability. And so the acceptance of prayer um, of a person who's travelling has been multiplied. Mm, absolutely. No, it just brings to mind... Um, I'm sure I've read somewhere that uh, we've been encouraged as Muslims to think of this world as just a journey. Mm-hmm. And uh, the journey and our life at the moment is is just the, the, the stop as a, a traveller with a camel stops under the shade of a tree. So if we're constantly on a journey, we're constantly not comfortable. And that, that, <laughs> and, you know, that um, focuses our mind on God as well. Yeah. But and, the thing is, it's, often you only realise this as you get older in life. <laughs> yeah. um, and that's why I think, you know, um, I mean, a, a few years ago, I think it was um, His Holiness um, mentioned a Persian couplet, and it's stuck in my mind that in old age, even a ferocious wolf becomes um, kind of full of prayer. Mm. Um, I don't remember the exact words, but it's because, you know, when you're young, you're strong. 
Mm. You know, you're full of energy. You feel like you can do anything, achieve anything. And you're invincible, absolutely. Mm. As you get older, you realise, actually, we are vulnerable every day, every yeah. minute. Yeah. So as young people, we should put ourselves into a position where we feel vulnerable all the time. Yeah. Absolutely. And just know that our reliance should just totally be on God. You can't even, you know, you can't rely on anyone or anything, absolutely. really. Absolutely. Mm. Okay, so we're just going to stop now again for a quick break, after which we'll continue our interesting discussion. So, assalamu alaikum. We'll see you back soon. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio, broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Speaking about the aims and objectives of this annual convention, the Jalsa Salana, the promised Messiah, founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed Unhumbi Peace, writes, This is one of the needs of this Jalsa, that strategies for the spiritual well-being of Europe and America should be put forward. For this is now a proven fact that good-natured and sincere people of Europe and America are preparing to enter the fold of Islam. The promised Messiah the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, states in regards to the annual convention, This gathering will be devoted to the exposition of such truths and spiritual insights as are necessary for the promotion of faith, certainty, and spiritual understanding. Moreover, there will be specific prayers and attention given to the participants, and we shall endeavor to the best of our capabilities to supplicate at the threshold of the most merciful that he may draw them towards himself, accept them, and bring about a pious change within them. We believe that all people are born equal, and we are against all forms of discrimination based on caste, creed, or color. Writings of the Promised Messiah, salam. Remember that no one will descend from heaven, all our opponents who are alive today will die, and no one will see Jesus, son of Mary, descending from heaven. Then their next generation will pass away, and no one of them will see this spectacle. Then the generation next after that will pass away without seeing the son of Mary descending from heaven. Then God will make them anxious that though the time of the supremacy of the cross had passed away, and the world had undergone great changes, yet the son of Mary had not descended from heaven. Then wise people will suddenly discard this belief. The third century after today will not yet have come to a close when those who hold this belief, whether Muslims or Christians, will lose all hope and will give up this belief in disgust. There will then be only one religion that will prevail in the world and only one leader. I have come only to sow the seed which has been sown by my hand. Now it will sprout and grow and flourish, and no one can arrest its growth. Ever since man walked on the face of the earth, there have been over 15,000 major wars that have killed close to 4 billion people. Though impossible to calculate accurately, it is estimated that since the beginning of our recorded history, the world has known only about 300 years of peace. Each leader in the world desires to find a lasting solution to the issue that has plagued our beautiful planet 
centuries over centuries. There have been many movements, conferences, organizations and NGOs all over the world that promote the idea of world peace. But peace on earth has continued to be just an aspiration. Khilafat Ahmadiyya is the heavenly institution that was prophesied by the peace-loving Prophet Muhammad History has shown that whenever the world suffers disorder and injustice, a spiritually guided man stands up and advises the world on how to achieve peace through the heavenly teachings of Islam. Love for all, hatred for none. Love for all, hatred for none. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum, peace be on you, and welcome back to a very special episode of Faith in Focus on the Voice of Islam Radio. Today, broadcasting from Jalsa Salana 2022 site. So, we've been talking about traveling for the cause of our faith. I'd like to ask our panelists one final question. Uh, why do you make the effort to travel and attend the annual convention? We may have covered some of this before. <laughs> How important is this event for your lives and your spiritual development? Dara, if we can come to you first, please. Well, I think you're all going to agree. We all know we're going to agree. It's hugely important for all of us. <laughs> and that's why we're here um, and, you know, we have the great, I would say it's the grace of Allah that, you know, I've grown up attending the convention. I know you would have yeah. as well. Um, and we've been able to personally witness how the organization and we've talked about all the different services and hospitality, and, you know, they're improving year on year. And at the same time, um, you know, we're able to, we're, we've seen that improvement. and We've also been able to experience the atmosphere. And the atmosphere is something that you just cannot convey, mm. like with just me telling you what it's like. <laughs> um, you have to be here. You know, and listening to the words of His Holiness and other guest speakers, you know, I would say that it's had a huge impact on my heart over the years. Um, you know, it's given me guidance, taught me things that I don't know. It's lifted me spiritually. And also, it's just so lovely to, you know, meet fellow Ahmadi women um, from around the country. And um, not this year, but often, you know, every other year, it's been from around the world as well. And, you know, you get to meet new people and connect on so many new levels. And um, sometimes you might meet, meet a new person and you develop, you know, such a strong bond. A great friendships born. Yeah. I've had many, uh, many friendships <laughs> like that. And other times you meet people and you might just see them every year at the annual convention. But, you know, you really look forward to reuniting. There's so much joy when you reunite. Um, sometimes you meet people in the same academic field or the same profession. And most importantly, we meet fellow mums, yes. you know. <laughs> and so I could, I mean, we, I could go on and on because the list of benefits just does go on. Um, but ultimately, you know, what brings us together, why we're here, um, we come because of the deep spirituality of the experience. And, you know, I always depart on the third day and I feel like I'm a changed person. I feel like I have a changed heart. Um, I feel like I have a new hope. You know, I've, my spirits have been lifted. I can change. I can be a better person. And that I'm going to try to be better. And I think especially in today's day and age, you know, it's a hope that we really all need. Yeah, It's like um, the refreshment, like Absolutely. a refresher for you. Yeah, oh, just all for 
expressing your sentiments and I'm really feeling your mm. <laughs> the yeah. feelings that you're feeling thank you um, uh, what about you Nadia yeah so I can agree more with um, what Thayla auntie has just um, captured so beautifully um, it really echoes my own sentiments very well um, the speeches of the annual convention have a huge impact on me too and the atmosphere really is unparalleled I love the um, exhibitions, they're always fantastically researched and curated. And the convention is really an opportunity to become closer to God, to increase our religious knowledge and to get to know fellow MDs like Auntie Daria was saying just now. Um, I've met lots of wonderful ladies from around the world um, and different walks of life. And this is something that I personally have always really appreciated because in my hometown where I've grown up and still live, my family and I are the only MDs. But this, despite that, I am still grateful for the fact that, you know, I, I at least live in South England because I know some people save up for years and years and undertake um, really long and arduous journeys to get to the Jaza Salana. And sadly as well, in some countries, our fellow Emily brothers and sisters cannot hold annual gatherings because of severe persecution. For example, in one country, there hasn't been a Jalsa Salana since as long ago as 1983. So really, um, my small efforts to travel and attend are nothing in comparison to the sacrifices of others. And as well, I'd add that the last couple of years, um, there haven't been proper Jalsa Salanas. There was a smaller scale one last year, but I wasn't able to attend to that. So in light of, you know, not having been for so long well what felt like really long for me it's really wonderful to be to be back and it is so hard to describe it through words as um Antithaya was mentioning just now but there is such a strong sense of unity and serenity in Hadika al mahdi and that means you know the garden of the mahdi or messiah and this is something that i really treasure in a world which increasingly seems broken and divided and I can only really pray that the rest of the world too can discover, enjoy and experience these wonderful bounties and beauties of Ahmadiyyat Islam. Attending this event, I believe, is an immense blessing. Munazza brought up at the start that the convention was established in 1891 in a small village. There were only 75 humble devotees in attendance. Now, here in the UK prior to COVID, Numbers were regularly hitting above 35,000. It's extraordinary by God's grace. It's something that testifies to God's blessings upon the community and how he is answering the promised Messiah's heartfelt prayers. For this reason, it's also a great honor for me to be able to volunteer at the convention. I think attendance estimates may be similar this year. I've heard 30,000, but I guess we'll find out the final figure tomorrow. Um, and having missed the annual convention the last two years, um, again, I just reiterate that I'm really grateful to be here again for this spiritual recharge. Yeah, absolutely. Jalsa is is a break away um, from what we normally, uh, just our normal lives. Now, I'd like to thank my studio guests for joining me today and for sharing their insights. Thank you to our listeners. You've been listening to Faith in Focus on the Voice of Islam radio, produced by Dore Shawar Anwar and Mrs. Shermeen Butt. We're now we're going over to the ladies to hear the live address of His Holiness Mirza Masroor Ahmad. May Allah be his helper.